Well, this morning, we're going to meet Job. We're going to begin our sermon series through the book of Job. We're going to meet the man this morning. And Job is a book that wrestles with the problem of pain. It wrestles with the idea of suffering and injustice, and it asks, why? Why in a world created by a good and all-powerful God, why does suffering exist? It asks why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people, and it's not shy about raising these questions. I think that's really important, by the way. God is not shy about raising these questions. He wants us to ponder such questions in the bad times and especially, I think, in the good times because he wants to prepare our hearts uh, for what it means to follow him in a fallen world. He wants to prepare our hearts and our faith to encounter difficulties so that when they come, we're not exposed. Since this is the case... Uh, We're going to meditate on these kinds of questions throughout the book of Job over the next 10 weeks. And we're going to ask the Lord to deepen our faith in him and to prepare us to follow him. And now let me just say something that is a pastoral word. I didn't write this in my sermon. But what I know is true is that in this congregation, we have people who are in the worst of times and we have people who are in great times, the best of times. That people are all over the map here. And that presents, when you're looking at suffering, when you're preaching through something like the book of Job, that presents a special challenge to the the preacher. So I want you to know that as we go through this sermon series, wherever you're at, we're trying to speak in a way that meets you there. Benjamin and I are going to try to make sure that we have things that both convict you challenge you if you're in the best of times to think about pain and suffering and what it means to live in a fallen world but also words of consolation we want to preach words of consolation comfort to those who are suffering when we fall short no it's not because we're not trying and know that God is truly the only one who's going to be able to speak those words of comfort and consolation those words of conviction into your life And we're just the mouthpiece. We're just trying to say what's true. So wherever you're at, we hope to meet you there. And that's just, again, that's just a pastoral word as we begin this series. Well, let's begin at the beginning of the book of Job. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it here aloud. And then um, we're going to pray that God indeed would be the one who comes this morning and instructs our hearts and our minds. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, 
Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. That was his, his habit. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to meet Job this morning, uh, this man that you've given so many chapters of your Bible to. We want to look at him, we want to understand him, and we want to see how you want to teach us through this examination of human life under the microscope, in the midst of suffering. Uh, we, we ask that you would come this morning and that you would enliven us with your Holy Spirit, that you would be working here among us to bring your lessons to us. And we want to pray all these things in the name of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we read these five introductory verses, it's impossible for us not to notice that they're all about one guy. They're all about Job. The verses and the book focus on a human being. It'd be easy to forget that. We can look at Job just like a character, like, like he's fiction. No, this is a man. This is a human being. We need to empathize with him. And his life is under the microscope here. He, in a sense, is the battleground where questions concerning pain and suffering, good and evil, justice and injustice are argued over and contended for. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next 10 weeks. As one scholar points out, Job is either on the stage or the subject of discussion at every point in the book. So we need to pay careful attention to how Job is introduced to us. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to get to know this man, Job, this human being. And we're going to organize today's study around getting to know him. So here is the direction we're going to move. First, we're going to find out that Job was devout and blameless. Devout and blameless. We want to understand, we want to understand what that means. That's an interesting thing to say about Job. Devout and blameless. Second, we're going to see that he's wealthy and powerful. He has it all. We want to understand what that can teach us. And then third, we're going to find out that Job struggles with worry and anxiety. And when you read these five verses, you may not see that initially, but I think it's there. And we're going to look at that too and see what his worry and his anxiety have to teach us. So let's begin at the beginning uh, with devout and blameless. This is the first thing that we're told in verse 1. Now everybody here knows somebody who's one of those people who's really kind, really nice, Always thinking of other people, even before they think of themselves. All of us know someone like that, right? The kind of person who sends birthday cards to you that arrive right on your birthday. They come in the mail. Or they buy gifts for people, even though it's not, you know, a special occasion. They just, hey, I was thinking about you and I got you this. You know, the kind of people that put us under the pile. You know exactly who I'm talking about. They're the kind of people who make us feel like we're not that great at loving on others because they love so well, the other people in their lives, and they do it without any strings attached, right? My aunt is one of those people. She sends all of my five kids birthday cards that arrive on their birthdays, and Natalie and me too, and anniversary cards. 
oh, I love her, but I kind of hate her, you know, because I feel like such an idiot after I get those cards, because I never do that kind of thing. My seminary advisor, um, yeah, he he would talk about his father-in-law. His father-in-law was one of these people, except his father-in-law was one of these people who lived that way directly because of what God had done for him in the gospel. He lived a beautiful life, but it was a beautiful life that was fueled by the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And he loved to tell stories about his father-in-law. His, his father-in-law owned an orchard in California. And the migrant workers who would work during harvest time on his orchard would actually race to get to his property, to get a job there, because uh, this... This man would pay more generously than the other farmers in the area. And not only that, but he would get to know these these migrant workers' names. And he would remember those names from year to year. And he would get to know the names of their families. And just showing them a respect and a care that was uncommon. And he would tell these stories about his father-in-law. That's how his father-in-law lived because of his relationship with Jesus. In fact, when his father-in-law passed away, he said many of the migrant workers who had worked on his property year after year, out of great inconvenience to themselves, made their way to the funeral to pay their respects. All of this because of someone's relationship with Jesus Christ impacting these people's lives. It's a beautiful way to live. I think this is how our author describes Job's character in a sense. Oh, sure, we don't get all of those details. But I think we get the sense that Job lived an authentic and just and caring and kind life. He cared and thought about other people. The way Job lives in public is the way Job lives in private. There's an old rabbinical, old um, rabbi phrase or saying that goes like this, his within was like his without. Job's within was like his without. What was in his heart, his love, his reverence for God came out in the ways that he lived his life. It's very beautiful. Now, Job is described as blameless. We want to understand that rightly because we could wrongly insert sinless for blameless. That's not what the text is saying. In fact, Job will say of himself later on in the book that he's a sinner. But what blameless does mean is that in relationship to God, Job is living authentically. When he sins, he takes his sins to God. And as much as it's up to him, he lives his life in a way that brings God glory. Again, the picture of Job here is one of somebody who lives a beautiful life because of their relationship to God. Now, Job is an ancient book. Maybe the oldest book that we have in the Bible, in terms of when it was written, how long it's existed. It's an ancient book. Job lived thousands of years before Jesus lived. Thousands of years. And yet he lived his life in this way. Right? He lived a blameless life before God, in awe of his Lord. He didn't know how much God was going to sacrifice to take care of his sin problem. He couldn't have imagined what God was going to do in the person of Jesus Christ. That God was going to put on flesh and walk the earth and be the sacrifice for his sins. He couldn't have known any of that. And yet, he lives 
a beautiful life, doesn't he? Yeah, we have the good news. If we're followers of Jesus, if we trusted in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have the good news. We know that through our faith in Jesus, our sins have been removed as far from us as east is from west. We know that death has lost its sting in relationship to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that the Spirit of God dwells in us, working sanctifying purposes in our lives. We have every advantage on Job. So shouldn't we live beautiful lives as well? Isn't what we see in Job, isn't that our calling too as believers today? In fact, even more so. Because God lives in us and God has given us great assurance in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's your assignment. I like giving assignments. I used to be a teacher. I love giving assignments. I hate grading assignments. So rest assured, I will not grade this assignment, but I am going to give it to you today. Here's your assignment. Uh, Today, this week, this month, as you move forward in the future, reflect on the ways, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that he has met you in your darkest moment. That he's blessed you beyond what you could ever earn or deserve. That he's encouraged you and counseled you when you needed it most. Think of all of those things, specific things in your life. Think about them and then go and live accordingly. Do the same kinds of things as well as you can with other people. Bless them when they don't deserve it. Counsel them and care for them in their darkest broken moments. Live in relationship to them, as God has lived in relationship to you. And you will live beautiful lives. Uh, Start small at first. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by everything we think we need to do. Start small. But don't stay at small. Don't stop there. But add small to small until small becomes big, until it becomes a snowball growing and growing in your life of righteousness and care and love for others until you live a beautiful life for the glory of God. And when you fail, know that that's okay because your righteousness is in Jesus Christ and then turn and pursue a beautiful life again. That's your assignment, right? Just a little thing. Just a little something for you guys to do. Please, though, don't go away from here and think I'm just going to get back into the patterns of my daily life, a life that is indiscernible from the lives of unbelievers around me. No, live beautifully for the glory of God. Well, that's the first thing we learn about Job and from Job. Next, we find out that he's wealthy and powerful. Extremely wealthy, extremely powerful. Look at the next two verses again with me. Verse 2 and verse 3. The narrator tells us this. They were born to Job, seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man, Job, was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, This is the ancient Near East's version of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Can I get a show of hands? How many of you remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? 
Yeah, all the old people, right? Mostly. Yeah, he says like 80s and 90s. I'm going way back on this one. So for you youngins in the audience, this is Kardashian rich, right? This is Bill Gates rich. Job has it all. Our narrator is playing at Robin Leach, who was the host of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous back in the 80s and the 90s, right? When he's talking about Job here, he's talking about a person who has everything. We're supposed to have a jaw-dropping reaction to what we see here in terms of his possession. But let's, possessions, let's unpack the possessions, though, because we need to understand in the context of when this book was written what they would have meant to people who were reading this. So first, let's start with children. Children were considered a special blessing from God. How I wish in our culture that was still true. How I wish it was still true. The church needs to value the blessing of children. Little men and women created in the image of God. But in his culture, everybody said, oh yeah, kids, what a blessing. And Job's got 10 of them. It would take Benjamin and me putting our kids together to get 11 and get one up on Job. And that's two guys, right? I mean, Job, he's blessed. He's blessed. And the numbers here are really important because in the ancient Near East, numbers meant things. And seven was a really important good number. And three was a really important good number. If you add those two together, 10 was a really good and important number. And the point of those numbers to the audience originally would have said, Job's blessings in children and family life are full. They're complete. God has been so good to him. He's got it all in his family life. How about animals? Well, animals were were luxury possessions and Job's got bunches and bunches of them. Right? It's just like having a massive bank account and uh, all these vacation homes. It's just sort of insurance. Like, I could always sell that or this. Uh, I am so well to do. And notice that the numbers of animals in the thousands are also good numbers, right? There's a completeness, a, a fullness to Job's financial blessings. That's what we're supposed to see here. And then finally, look how many people he's got on payroll. Right? He's got all kinds of people who are working for him, ready to go here and there whenever he just says, go. Job has got it all. And so the narrator concludes that Job was the greatest person in all the East. Did you know this is precisely how you'd want it to be? Like we're supposed to think to ourselves, this is as it should be, right? The guy who is reverent and pious and blameless is also the guy who's calling all the shots, right? This should be music to our ears. We should say, yes, yes. Someone who's going to seek justice, someone who's going to do what's right. He's calling all the shots. It's like presidents and kings that are upright and just and care about the common man. This is how it should be. And it's music to our ears because so often in our world, it's not this way, is it? In fact, I just read a a Time online article that ranked the top 10 abuses of power in recent history. And it is a disturbing list. A, A dictator who sends his commandos to kidnap and enslave young women. Uh, or uh, a Chinese politician who took $850,000 in bribes 
from pharmaceutical companies so that they could market uh, drugs that weren't safe and eventually killed people. Right? Or, or a businessman who took investors' money and threw his wife a $2 million birthday party. Abuses of power. Taking advantage of people for your own personal gain. It's disturbing. But we don't have to go far away. We don't have to go halfway around the world to find abuses of power, do we? We see them in the workplace, oftentimes in our jobs each and every day. We see them in our neighborhoods. And if we're really honest, we see them in our own homes. This is not a problem that is distant. This is a problem that is in our hearts. We are those who would abuse power so often. I recently took this picture and sent it to my three closest childhood friends. If you don't know, this is my son, Josiah. He's learning how to mow the lawn. With that picture to my three closest childhood friends, I wrote this. I knew this day would come. Now, there are lots of reasons, good and virtuous reasons, that you can teach your son how to mow the lawn. You could want to teach him that hard work is is a good character trait and that you should learn how to do something well. You could teach him how to mow the lawn so that he could get a summer job and he could earn some money for himself. You could teach him that when you own property, you have to keep that property up and and so you need to count the cost before you buy something because you need to take care of it. But let's be honest. I wasn't texting my friends and celebrating with them for any of these good and virtuous reasons. I was celebrating because now, now I had a lawn mowing slave. Someone to do the work that I didn't want to do. We can abuse the power we've been given so easily. It is native to us. We're sinners. Every time we look at an advantage that we have, every time we look at some power that we've been given, our first thoughts are usually not righteous. What can I get for myself through this power? That's how we think. So you need to ask yourself this. This is not a rhetorical question. You need to to think about this question. How do I use the power I have? How do I use the power I've been given, the authority I've been given from God? We all have power and authority. I don't care who you are. You have some power and some authority. How do you use it? Maybe you're a parent. How do you use your power with your children? Maybe you're an older brother or an older sister. How do you use the power with your younger siblings? Maybe you manage people in the workplace. You might be a teacher You might be a CEO. How do you use the power over those in the workplace, those people? You could be somebody who's a mentor or a discipler in the church, or you could be a small group leader. There are so many different avenues by which we have power. We need to think, how am I using it for the glory of God? Because you can either use it like Job uses it, to bring God glory, or you can use it like a dictator would use it for your own selfish gain. How do you use the power you've been given? 
Sometimes we neutralize such questions by saying, well, I really don't have that much power, so it doesn't really matter how I use it. But let me just tell you right now, God cares. He doesn't care how much power you have. He cares how you use it. You can go to Mark and chapter 12 in the New Testament. And there you will find Jesus sitting in the temple, watching people enter into the temple courts to make their offerings. And he watches powerful, rich men and women going and making their offerings, right? He watches them parade in and people, oh, look at that offering, how great it is, how grand it is. They celebrate the power and the money that this person is sacrificing for the Lord. But then he watches a poor widow Walk in there and lay just a few pennies on the altar. And Jesus says, she's given more than all the rest. Heaven celebrates at that offering. She's given everything she has. God is pleased with the way that that woman used her power and her authority to serve him. Do not think that God doesn't care about the way you use power or that you have too little of it for him to care. Well, let's move to the last thing we find out about Job, namely that he has worry and anxiety. And again, you might not have noticed this in the text. And our narrator doesn't come right out and say, hey, look at Job. He's worrying. He has anxiety. But I think he clearly pictures it here. Look at verse 4 and verse 5 with me again. Job's son's used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually or constantly, or this was his habit. I mean, he was, he was doing this kind of thing always, regularly. In the book of Job, this is the first hint we get that the world is not right. Before this, you might think everything is as it should be, but Job, Job's concern over his children shows us that things aren't perfect. That things in this world, a sinful and fallen world, could turn south at any moment. Job is worried for his children. Job is worried that they might curse God in their hearts and that the wrath of God might break out upon them at any moment. He is concerned. He is anxious. He is worried. He recognizes what the stakes are in a fallen and sinful world when you cross a holy God. Now, I want to say something here. On, on one hand, uh, the repetitive sacrifices of Job demonstrate something very positive, his piety and his concern over sin. These are, are important characteristics and they are good characteristics. We're supposed to say, yes, that's a good thing in Job. Right? It, it's good to take sin seriously. We as a people should take sin seriously. We should take our own sin seriously. We should take the sin of others seriously. Sin is deadly. And so in one sense, what we see here with Job is very positive. I'm not saying that's not there. However, from from where we sit, from this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, 
we should see the anxiety and the worry in Job that we no longer have to deal with. We should be encouraged that though Job did not know how much God would sacrifice for him and what he would do in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we nonetheless now do know and we can have security and comfort and we no longer need to be anxious about some of the things we see Job being anxious here about. So as we close, what I want to do is just close by encouraging you and me that God cares and that God has taken care of some of these things that Job had to worry about. Three passages, three things. If you placed your faith In Christ, you don't need to sacrifice anything anymore. You can't sacrifice anything to make yourself right before God. Jesus Christ has taken care of that. So the author of Hebrews says, And every priest stands daily at his his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Job's regular sacrifices, Job's constantly worrying over sins being atoned for, you don't have to worry about that. You can be secure through faith in Jesus Christ, that one sacrifice for all time. If you've trusted in Jesus as Lord, you don't need to worry that you're going to slip from his hands. Jesus has got his grasp on you. It is an unbreakable grasp. When you place your faith in Christ, you are his. He will not lose you. And so Jesus even tells us, John chapter 6, verse 37 through verse 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, You don't need to worry that you're going to, slip out of the grasp of Christ. You don't need to worry like Job does about his children. You need to recognize that in Christ, you are secure. Finally, if you're in Christ, you've trusted in him, you don't need to worry that the wrath of God might break out against you at any moment. Since Jesus has satisfied God's wrath by his death on the cross, Jesus has taken care of the wrath of God forever. Through faith in him, you receive God's love. Uh, You're made one of his children. He smiles upon you. He cares for you. He wants to bless you. That's what you have in Jesus Christ. And so John, the apostle, in 1 John chapter 4, writes this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation satisfier of God's wrath. Jesus is the satisfier of God's wrath. He has drank the cup of God's wrath down so that you would not have to. You don't need to worry whether or not at any moment God's wrath will break out against you if you're in Christ Jesus. 
And those of you who might not be Christians and are here today, let me just encourage you that this offers for you too. You don't need to worry about these things if you simply place your trust in Christ to take care of your sin problem and to give you his righteousness. You are secure in Christ. Indeed, we we live in a fallen and sinful world. We do, and we're going to see that Job, this guy who looks impenetrable, right? He's got everything. He's got a full family. He's got massive wealth. He's got all kinds of servants that, like that, Job is going to suffer. We're going to see this. We live in a fallen world. This could happen to us at any moment. Uh, In fact, you should count on it. You should count on it. You should prepare for it. Suffering like this takes place. In the midst of that suffering, however, in the midst of those situations, one thing is certain. One thing is sure. If you trust in Jesus, then you are secure. Sin won't win. Death will not triumph because in Christ, you have the victory and you are secure. That's what's certain. The gospel is good news Because it tells you that no matter what comes in this lifetime, God has a resurrection future for you, full of glory, full of himself. And that's the Christian hope. Not in the things that we possess, not in the relationships we have, but in our Lord and his sovereign faithfulness to us in Christ. Amen. Let me pray that indeed that would be our hope and our future. We you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, take the lessons from these first five verses and apply them to our lives. I do pray that the words that I spoke wouldn't be my words, but that there would be nuggets of your voice in them and that people would hear that and take that away from here. Lord, help us to live beautifully for your glory. Help us to use our influence to worship you and to care for others. And Heavenly Father, help us to value what we have in Christ rightly, the security that we have in our precious Savior. Help us to value that and to worship you in light of it. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.